Greetings. Welcome to White's Run Baptist Church Online. I hope today finds you well, and I want to thank you for joining us today because we have a great opportunity in exploring uh, the, the Old Testament together, seeing what it says about the covenants and how it helps us understand Jesus Christ. This is the last in a series called Beginnings, and the purpose of this series was to uh, try to help us gain an understanding of Jesus Christ, um, to provide a foundation for all faith and study, to emphasize in the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, uh, emphasizing its teachings concerning the covenants and concerning the one who eventually fulfills all of those covenants, and that is Jesus Christ. So I hope you found uh, the series helpful up to this point. If you haven't heard the rest of the series, this will still be a benefit to you, uh, this particular sermon, but I do invite you to listen to the whole thing as I believe it really helps us give a foundation for seeing Jesus in the Old Testament and what it teaches about him and how we can put these things into perspective for us. Well, here we're going to talk about the New Covenant. And as we know, uh, in fact, the words Testament, where we get the words Old and New Testament, is uh, also a parallel to covenant. So basically, it's calling the books that we call the Old Testament the Old Covenant and the books we call the New Testament the New Covenant. And that's because when Jesus came, he instituted a new covenant. God, as you know, made a covenant uh, with creation and indeed reiterated that through Noah, then he made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and made this covenant with Israel, which is really the same people, but he kind of laid on top of it these issues of the land. And then we uh, come into the New Testament where Jesus brings a new covenant. Now, what happened in between there? Well, the context we find ourselves in, we're gonna be in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is right at the very end of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the context is this. The Israelites are preparing to go into this promised land that God has promised them since Abraham. And so this is uh, several hundred years that this promise has been made to them that they would occupy this land, that they would actually own it. Now, the forefathers sojourned in it, but it wasn't theirs yet. Moses has reviewed with the people in the book of Deuteronomy what God has done for them to this point. And interestingly, that's a normal part of these covenant ceremonies, is that you would review the relationship to this point. So God reviews the relationship he has with the Israelites to this point by reviewing what he's done for them in bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. Then Moses begins to review all the laws that they got. As you know, there were not just the Ten Commandments, there were many other civil laws, and a Deuteronomy where it gets its name is the second law, the second giving of the law, where he reiterates many of those things in some detail. He reviews those laws, the expectations that God had for how these people were to follow him and obey him. But then he gives something new in the chapters just preceding chapter 30 that we're looking at today, Moses gives them many blessings and curses. He pronounces upon them blessings for obeying God in the land, curses for disobeying God in the land. And not only does Moses recite these to them, they were to go and have a covenant ceremony 
once they got into the land and they themselves, the tribes, six of them on one mountain, six of them on the other mountain, valley in between with the Levites and the Ark of the Covenant and all that in it. And they were to call back and forth these blessings and these curses to one another that Moses was giving them here in the book of Deuteronomy. So that was something new. And those serve as conditional statements that form kind of the legal equivalent of a rider, a promised land rider on the covenant that God had previously established with Abraham and his sons and grandsons. And so this rider then is all these conditions of living in the land. In other words, if you do well in the land, things will go well with you. And if you don't do well in the land, things won't go well with you. And eventually uh, God said, if you still disobey me, I'll take you out of the land. So it's very interesting, among all this talk at the end of Moses' life as they prepare to go into the promised land, there's a couple of very important statements that can easily be overlooked. And that's what we want to take a look at in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, starting in verse 1. And so I want you to uh, look at Scripture with me here. Beginning in verse 1, this is what it says, and I want you to pay careful attention to verse 1, the context. And verse 6, which is kind of our focal verse for today. Moses says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord with your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of the ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this. And Lord, I pray this day that you'll give us understanding of these words and that you'll help us to see the importance of the new covenant, the advantages of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. For Lord, you are gracious and kind and always have been. And yet in the new covenant, you have truly done amazing things. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we have uh, a revelation of God uh, to them, and there's a couple things that really stand out here. And the first thing I want you to notice is uh, a profound truth 
that indeed Israel would fail to keep the old covenant. Look at verse one that we just read. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So the Lord is speaking of a time yet future, and he's speaking of it as if it's already happened, that indeed they will have disobeyed him to the point that he put them in exile. And so basically saying, you're going to fail because in the future, when you've tested me all the way to exile and you're over there in all those other nations where I had to send you and you call these things to mind, then I'll bless you. And so it's kind of an amazing thing to look at. He has basically said Israel would fail to keep this commandment. There they are in exile. Now, elsewhere in the Old Testament, God does refer to them as having broken his covenant. He, at one point in one of the prophets, even gives them a notice of divorce. Now, this failure is the basic content of the Old Testament. And indeed, the nation Israel has their ups and downs, but eventually they fall into a downward spiral of unfaithfulness. Now, along the way, there's always some faithful people, and it is for those things we read the scriptures, we see the lives of these faithful people, even in the midst of some unfaithfulness or difficult times, and we learn a great deal. But it's amazing that they have this downward spiral. They go to the point of exile, being taken out of the land. God takes many of them out of the land, and then eventually reestablishes them in the land. Now, this is important to understand that God says very clearly that they broke his covenant, and yet he brings them back into the land. That means now, after the exile, after their return, and their return is accounted in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, when they return, they're basically living in this land under a broken covenant. And so it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's kind of shaky ground for a human being to be basically living in a place with a broken lease. The lease is already broken. It's like, you know, how is it that you're living here? Well, strictly by the grace of God. So technically, anything that happened after they broke his covenant, after he exiled them, anything that happens to the nation Israel after that point is purely the grace of God. It's not necessarily a term of the covenant. The regathering, the further blessings they have in the land, their, their reforming uh, government, their time of independence uh, when they had been oppressed by the Greeks and they got out from under that, all those things are the grace of God. But then finally comes this new covenant in the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. And so this new covenant comes as a great act of grace of God. Even though the old one had been broken, a new one would come. That is also apparent from this passage because look at verse 6. Something here. After he brings them back into the land, after they've broken the covenant, they've gone out of the land, he brings them back. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Now, as you know, the act of circumcision was a covenant sign for the people. God commanded them all to do it. All of Israel was to be circumcised on the eighth day of their life. And 
So now he's talking about a circumcision of the heart. And he's telling them, I'll circumcise your heart at the time. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about the new covenant. And although the words new covenant don't exist here explicitly here in the book of Deuteronomy, there are parallel passages in the the Old Testament that speak of this new covenant. And it talks about writing the law on their hearts. It talks about God putting the fear of God into their hearts. It talks about removing their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. So all of this talk about the new heart, about a change in the heart, about God doing something in the heart is new covenant language, the circumcision of hearts. And you can see from the context here in verse six, he's going to circumcise their hearts so that they'll love God. And then that love of God then results in obeying God. Look at verse 10. All this good things are going to happen to you when you obey. And so this is uh, when you turn to the Lord, it says, with all your heart and with all your soul. So the circumcision of the heart, this new covenant, is going to make them turn to God with all their heart. They're going to love God and they're going to obey God. This is an internal act of the Holy Spirit in the inner person. In the New Testament, we call that being born again. But we know that this new birth, according to the New Testament, being born again by the Spirit of God, could not have happened until Jesus atoned for sins. Then and only then, could the Spirit take up residence in this special way in people, in a person declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ? I want to show you something in Isaiah 6. It's a very interesting encounter, and most of you are probably familiar with it. Um, Isaiah is in the temple. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, in a train of his robe, filling the temple. And so he has this vision of God. And then these seraphim, these great angelic creatures that are majestic, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And look what Isaiah says in verse five. He says, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees this, and he freaks out. And the reason he freaks out is because he is in the presence of God, and he is a sinner. This happens several times in the Old Testament that God or one of his angels shows up and people freak out. The first thing God has to do is calm them down. Don't be afraid because they understood something about God. They understood that God was perfectly holy and that if sin were found in the presence of God, he would immediately judge that sin. And so they rightly feared the wrath of God because God is loving. He has to deal with sin. Otherwise, he doesn't love those that are sinned on. And so we look at this 
scene here. And what's he going to do? He says, I am lost, or in some translations, I'm undone. In other words, I'm, I'm toast. One of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And Isaiah says, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So an atonement was made for the sins of Isaiah. Now, notice what the angel didn't say. He came to him and he put the coal to his lips. And I don't know if there was great pain involved in this for Isaiah or what. I don't understand how, you know, tangible this vision was. But the angel did not show up and say, yeah, I know you've made a few mistakes, but it's okay. You're basically a nice guy. Or he's like, oh, you know, God, he's he's forgotten all that. Really, anything you did wrong in the past, God's willing to put it behind him. He didn't say anything like that. No, he comes over and he says, your sin, your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, something had been done to make it possible for Isaiah to be in the very presence of God. God wasn't just saying, it's okay to be in my presence. I don't care if you got a little sin on you. It's all right. I'll have the carpets cleaned when you leave. It's a fact. A sinner can't be in the presence of God. So then that begs a question because we come to the New Testament and Jesus talks about sending the Holy Spirit and talks about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So how can the Holy Spirit of God dwell inside of of sinful man? Well, see, Jesus Christ was an eternal offering. And Jesus Christ covers all the sins of his people, past, present, and future. So his continual presence in heaven is to make intercession for his people continually. He is still fulfilling this priestly role in heaven. As you know, we talked about the priesthood a few sermons ago. When we talked about the tabernacle, we talked about the fact Jesus is our great high priest, that he went and he offered himself. Not only is he the high priest, he's also the offering. But he continues in his priestly role because the Bible says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So he's continuing this priestly representation in heaven itself. So he's doing this in heaven, which means it is all encompassing. It is universal. It is indeed eternal. So it is when we believe and we are justified Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness. This is all in Romans 3. And that is what makes it possible for God the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And we are made holy by that. We are made clean by the intercession of Jesus Christ, by the forgiveness of sins. This is how God can dwell inside imperfect people. This is why we don't lose the Holy Spirit every single time we mess up as believers or or make a mistake or sin against God. He has ascended into heaven. He's taken up intercession for us. And so this kind of answers the question that I had as a new believer. Why didn't God just start with this whole Jesus thing? 
you know, why didn't he just send Jesus? Why mess around all this time with these Israelites? It looked like it was a great difficulty for God. It was definitely a painful time for him to have to deal with these people all through the Old Testament. Why not just send Jesus? You know, Adam and Eve sinned and he shows up and they go, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm Jesus. I'm here to save you from your sins. Because God had to establish things in righteousness. He had to establish a law code for Jesus to fulfill. He had to establish the prophecies to prove his identity. He had to establish the priesthood and everything else and all these things that Jesus fulfilled in order for him to rightly take our place on the cross. So this revelation that is in the uh, book of Deuteronomy here is that Israel would indeed fail to keep their old covenant, but a new covenant would come. And that's what, when it says, I'll circumcise your heart, he's speaking of this new covenant. He's speaking of what's going to come in what's going to bring ultimately salvation for them. Because the implication is, y'all are going to mess this up so bad, you're going to go all the way to exile. But I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to fix it. And so that's the next thing we see here. Israel failed in the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant did not change their hearts. Israel failed in the Old Covenant because it did not change their hearts. Look at Deuteronomy 29.4 in the chapter just previous to the one that we read or the one that we read part of. It says here, um, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Well, what's he talking about? Well, let's back up just a little bit here. And this is Moses. He brings all Israel to him again. There's multiple assemblies here in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In other words, they saw all the miracles that God did. They even heard God's voice speak from the mountain. But they did not yet have hearts that would understand. Now, in the Old Testament, you've probably heard Jesus use a saying. And indeed, some preachers use this saying. Whenever they read the scripture, they'll use a saying. And the saying is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's several places in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels when Jesus says it. It's also found in the book of Revelation. He said it when he was speaking of his people. See, Jesus began to speak, and partway through his ministry, began to speak to people in parables. And the disciples came to him and said, why are you teaching in parables? You know, they, they would have preferred that he spoke plainly to them. And Jesus says to his disciples, To you, it has been given to know the things of the kingdom, but to them it is not. And Jesus basically explained, I preach in parables so that some will hear and understand and some will not. I do it to reveal it to some, but to hide it from others. 
this is a fascinating thing. And when he talked about then having ears to hear, he was talking about his own people. He was talking about those that would believe him, that ultimately followed him. And this is why he spoke in parables the way he did, to hide it from some, to reveal it from others. It is the one who has the Holy Spirit of God who has the ears to hear and the eyes to see. This is why we don't need miracles to prove the gospel to us. There's a lot of people running around out there that if you're doing the true gospel, then you should really have some miracles happening there. You should have a healing service at your church, then everyone would believe. And it's like, we don't need those things. You know why we don't need them? Because we have the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that Jesus said would convict us of our sin and convict us of what is righteous. And so it's the Holy Spirit that does that work in people. And Jesus did miracles to prove who he was, but it's the Holy Spirit that caused the disciples to be born again at the day of Pentecost. And it is that same Spirit that still continues his work today. And so we don't have Jesus' miracles, we don't have the apostolic miracles, but we have something better. We have the actual Holy Spirit of God who's going to come and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Now, when we look there at Deuteronomy 29.4, some people would say, well, that's not fair. He did all these things, and yet he never gave them a heart to understand. God's just playing with these people. He's holding back something from them. He's holding back understanding for them. But as we see the narrative of the scriptures unfold, we understand this. It wasn't time for that yet. Jesus had to come and make atonement, rise from the dead, and assume his position in heaven in order for the Holy Spirit to come and give ears to hear, eyes to see, to give understanding of what they were seeing. Now, just because he didn't give them a heart to understand at that time doesn't mean that there weren't faithful people. In the Old Testament, you read of many faithful people. And in the New Testament, indeed, before the Holy Spirit came, there were 11 that were very faithful to Jesus. There were about 500 total that he appeared to after his resurrection, all believing Jesus, all following Jesus. And then there were many who came to faith on that day of Pentecost. So they were able to believe to some extent, to follow, to be convinced to be even maybe pricked in the heart some before Jesus ascended. But then once Jesus ascended, the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit came upon them and they became the real deal. They had enough faith to obey up to that point, enough to follow him. But then this is the same then opportunity that was offered in the Old Testament, that God revealed himself, he had his word, he, he showed them things, he worked in their lives, and so they had that opportunity to believe and to follow. And many people took God up on the offer, but the majority did not and could not because of their great blindness. So I believe the primary purpose of the Old Testament is to reveal God. But in addition to that, I believe another primary lesson of the Old Testament 
is to show beyond any doubt that if mankind were ever to be saved, it was going to have to be an act of God. It's going to have to be an act of God. So something else we learn here is that it is the new covenant that would bring obedience by the Holy Spirit changing their hearts. If we go back to our verse that we're looking at here, our focal verse in verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of the offspring so that you'll love the Lord your God. And it's very important. There's a connection, Old and New Testament, between love and obedience. Look at it here. He says, you know, you'll have your heart circumcised so that you'll love God. And then he goes on to say what will happen. God will make you prosperous and everything else in verse 10 when you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this circumcision of the heart leading to the love of God leads immediately then to the obedience of God. And all through the book of Deuteronomy up to this point is this connection between loving God and obeying God. And here we see it. We see it in the New Testament explicitly. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now that brings us to another very important point is that uh, there is obedience in the new covenant. Obedience in the new covenant. I made mention of the connection between circumcision of the heart and obedience. And we saw it there in verses 6 and 10 in Deuteronomy 30. I want to fast forward then to this night that you see in the scripture here. Uh, This night in which Jesus was arrested. He ate the Passover meal with his disciples. And after dinner, he got to the cup that was traditionally poured out. And he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, a lot of people kind of read the gospels and they get to that Passover meal. He sits down with the, you know, disciples and everything else. And he goes, he goes, oh yeah, here, by the way, you know, this is, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Um, you know, and, and then he institutes the new covenant in the Lord's supper and then moves on to other topics. You know, I would think if there's a new covenant, he'd have a little bit to say about it. I mean, look at the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy and understand this is God establishing his covenant with the people of Israel. That's a lot of text. There's some narrative space in there, but that's a whole lot of laws. That's a whole lot of space to be talking about a covenant between God and a large group of people. And here Jesus comes and says, I'm starting a new covenant. And he gives it a sentence. It doesn't make sense, but it does make sense if you understand he doesn't stop talking about the new covenant there. They continue to talk that night and they, as they walk over to the Mount of Olives and as they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus continues to speak with them. And in that discourse, much of which is contained in John chapters 13 to 17, in that discourse, primarily he reveals what is new 
about this covenant. And when we think about John in those passages, those chapters 13 through 17, well, 17, the entire thing's a prayer. 15's about the vine and the branches and abiding in Christ and having his continual presence with us and surrounding this idea of abiding in Christ and him abiding in us are chapters 14 and 16, which are primarily about the Holy Spirit of God. And so Jesus is indeed speaking of this new covenant. He is indeed revealing to his disciples what's different about the new covenant. And the primary subject that he covers is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that's different about the new covenant. That is the big deal. That is the main point of the difference between the new and the old covenant. And so when God says to the Israelites, I'm going to circumcise your heart, or he says elsewhere, I'm going to put my spirit in you. He says it explicitly. He says elsewhere, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. He's talking about this work of the Holy Spirit that he's going to give us. And just to uh, drive the point home, I want to point out a few similarities between this passage in John 13 through 17 and the book of Deuteronomy. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Isn't that interesting? Earlier in his ministry, he talked about the two greatest commandments, that all the law and the prophets can be summed up by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is a quote from Deuteronomy, and also love your neighbor as yourself, which is also a quote from the Pentateuch. And so you have those two things. He boils the entire law down to it. But then he says, I'm going to give you a new one, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so he's giving them even the sign of the covenant. The sign of this new covenant is is that they would love one another. That's how people are going to know that they belong to Christ. And then he tells them to believe in God. And many times in the book of Deuteronomy is the encouragement to the people to love God, to believe in God. Look what it says here in Deuteronomy 6, 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Isn't that amazing? And so he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And later in the same chapter 14, he says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And look what it says in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 11, way back there in chapter 11, you shall love the Lord your God and do what? Keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. In other words, love and obedience go together. The word love appears many times in the book of Deuteronomy and it appears in two ways, the love of God for his people and how his people ought to love him. And that love is connected directly to their obedience. And that's precisely what Jesus says to us in his new covenant. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's also a promise in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's reiterated in the book of Joshua, that the Lord promises, I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you. And in you go to uh, John 14, 18, and what does Jesus say? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. <laughs> Yet a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. 
And he speaks of the fact that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, which is another comforter like himself. So if you look in this discourse of John 14 or 13 through 17, you're going to find many parallels to the book of Deuteronomy. As Moses was handing off the people to the care of Joshua as they were getting ready to go into the promised land. So Jesus is handing off the disciples to the Holy Spirit as they begin the conquest of the world in spreading the gospel. And so there's this beautiful parallel between the books. And there are blessings for obedience that abound in the chapters in John there of all the blessings that they'll have if they abide in Jesus Christ. The most important of which and the greatest blessing of which is his abiding presence itself. So it's just like in the Old Testament, God said to the Israelites, I will be your God, you will be my people. The promise is the presence of God. And the presence of God is like it never was before. He's not a pillar of fire and pillar of cloud leading us. He's not merely present, you know, in in a spiritual kind of way. He's actually indwelling us by his Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I will be your God. You will be my people. Well, what's the takeaway from this? What do we want to learn and understand from this? What we want to learn, first of all, is this, that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship because he did what the Israelites couldn't do, what we can't do. He was faithful to God. He followed God. He obeyed God. And he fulfilled all of the covenants. Review the Old Testament and you'll find he he fulfilled them all. He fulfilled the covenant with Adam by filling the earth and subduing it. He is ruling on earth right now through his church who is been told to go to all nations, which is also fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. He's fulfilling justice that was given in Noah, where he says, you know, if if man sheds blood, then by man shall, shall his blood be shed. In other words, he handed down capital punishment and kind of really the justice system and human government and everything that's going to have to go with that kind of command in Genesis chapter nine to Noah and You know, that's why we have governments to this day. But Jesus fulfills that too, because he's going to come back and he's going to reign upon the earth in perfect justice. Every sin will have been punished either on the cross for those who believe or eternity and suffering in hell for those who don't. Jesus is going to be the perfect leader, the perfect judge. And then he fulfills the the promise to Abraham because he comes and he dwells here in a new heaven and a new earth, reigning from the new Jerusalem, also fulfilling the covenant with David. He fulfills the covenant with Israel by obeying all that the Lord had for him to do while he was in the land. He obeyed all those things perfectly and went to the cross without sin. So Jesus is worthy of all worship for he has done and is doing and will do all of these things to fulfill all of these covenants for mankind. I want you to rewind a moment and I want you to go back and read about the covenant ceremony that Abraham made with God and actually God made with Abraham because God put Abraham to sleep and God then went through, you know, with the, the, the burning 
torch and you know the the vision that that goes through god does the covenant ceremony where normally both people making a covenant together would walk through these severed halves of the sacrifices and they were in essence saying you know if i break my covenant may i become like these things as dead as these things it was a a very solemn ceremony very solemn oath uh to fulfill the terms of the covenant well god knew that man was going to fail god knew that israel was ultimately going to fail he puts abraham to sleep he puts him on the side and god alone goes through and recites the terms of the covenant do you realize that when god did that because mankind would break his side of the covenant that jesus was the payment jesus was the one who suffered and died for the breaking of the covenant and so it's in him that we place our faith and trust as the sacrifice for our sins. And that brings us to the second point of application that I want you to see is this. Jesus is the only way, therefore, to be saved. There can be no other way to be saved. Jesus Christ is it. And part of the revelation of the Old Testament is this. If if God, if mankind is ever going to be saved, it's going to have to be an act of God because man can't do it. Man fails again and again and again. And yeah, there were many faithful people, many wonderful people that God encountered all, all along the way, but ultimately none of them succeeded to fulfill the covenant. Jesus is the only way to be saved. In the book of Acts, the early church preached, there is no other name under heaven by which to be saved. And so then that brings me to a question. And a question you have to ask yourself. It's not important what I think. It's not important what others think about you or your situation. But the question is this. Have you been born again? And that's important because you saw that the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant is being born again. It's this work of the spirit in the heart of a human being. And I'll, I'll lay out this challenge to you. That is the difference between Christianity and every other religion mankind has ever come up with. The difference is that in true Christianity, one is born again, changed by the Spirit of God from the inside. And it is an act of the grace of God, and it's not by works so that no one can boast about it. So when I ask you if you've been born again, the right answer is not, well, I've always gone to church. I've always tried to do my best. I, I try to love my neighbor those aren't answers to the question. Now, they might be signs that a person is born again. But the real issue is this. Has the Holy Spirit cut your heart? Has the Holy Spirit taken out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh? It is no accident that the law was written on tablets of stone. And then God comes along and he says, I'm going to write the law on your heart. See, I'm going to take out the stony heart. I'm not going to write it on that. I'm going to write it on the fleshy one, the new one I give you, the one that's alive. And then 
you'll love me, and then you'll obey me. Is your religion a natural working out of the work of the Holy Spirit that's happened inside you? Is your religion inside out? Or is your good works and your religion and your faithfulness a way that you're trying to gain favor with God? We've seen very clearly the the Old Testament, the entire thing makes the argument, that's not going to help, that's not going to work. Sometimes we do good things, but for the wrong reasons. But if you've been born again, you're doing good things. There's no doubt about that. But you're doing them for the right reason. You're doing them for the love of God. Not just to have a better life. Not just to get along with people. Not to be respected in your community or to have business contacts or, you know, to get along with the spouse. You are obeying God because he has changed your heart. That is true religion. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name this day and we thank you so much that you've put forth Jesus Christ. Lord, as we all study your word, grant us understanding to see these things, to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ who did all this for us and to put our hope and trust in him. But Lord, most importantly this day, I pray that your spirit would wrestle with the soul that is hearing this right now, that they may be saved. I pray that you would do a wondrous work in their heart. Grant them eyes to see and ears to hear that they may understand Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for if we have gained anything from this, it is by your hand. If we have understanding, it is because you've granted it. If we have salvation, it is because it is your work and what you have done. And so we lay it all at your feet in praise because you indeed are worthy of all honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope you're uh, encouraged to engage with us. You can contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. So you can contact us there. You can learn more about us at whitesrun.org, and uh, email us there at whitesrunbaptist@gmail.com. We will get back to you personally, and it will be uh, our great honor to help you in searching the scriptures. If you're looking for a church and you're not in our local area, I encourage you to contact us. We can help you find a church in your area that preaches the truth and that brings forth uh, godly counsel and can come alongside you and help you in your faith journey. So may God bless you in that journey. May God reveal himself to you and grant you understanding, eyes to see and ears to hear.